Hey there, adventurer. I appreciate you taking the time to do an investigation check and dig into the archives of the show. I wanted to let you know that this is an old episode back when the show was called The Hard Thing Podcast. The topics are still the same, though the format and some of the names are different. If instead you are coming back to The Hard Thing Podcast, well, surprise, we changed our name and some of our branding. Feel free to hang out in the archives and listen to all the wonderful old episodes of The Hard Thing Podcast or take on a new adventure by listening to some of our current episodes. Either way, happy adventuring. Welcome back to the Hard Thing Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lewis, and this is the show designed to help you emulate the hardest things ever done on the world, in the world. Uh, today, I'm joined by guest Rob Dubin, Dubin, who's done some amazingly hard things, and I'll give you kind of a larger overview of his background at the end of today's show, but to help you get to know Rob even better, let's dive in right with the question of what's the hardest thing you've ever done? Well, thanks for having me, Justin. I would say that the hardest thing I've ever done was sort of a, uh, a two-part experience. A number of years ago, my wife and I were on a backcountry ski trip uh, near where we live in uh, Colorado, and we encountered a huge storm on the way to this uh, mountain hut that we were skiing towards. And uh, we got lost. We couldn't see more than a few feet in front of us. And it turned into one of the largest storms in Colorado's history. There were avalanches all over the state and people were trapped in their cars on a bunch of the mountain passes. And the water supply for the entire town of Aspen was threatened. And we ended up being lost in the storm for multiple days. And normally when this happens in Colorado in the wintertime, people really only last a day or two in that kind of conditions. And so there was a rescue attempt looking for us, which turned into the biggest rescue attempt in Colorado history. And after the third and fourth day when they couldn't find us, the story had gone viral. So millions of people around the country were watching their TV news to see if they had found the lost skiers. And on the fifth day, the sheriff decided that they were sending live people looking for dead bodies. And they called the search off and they said they would find our frozen bodies in the springtime. And we actually ended up getting out of the wilderness that same day at the end of that day after the coroner had already declared us uh, missing presumed dead. And when we got out, the very first phone call I got was from the president of the United States congratulating us on our survival. That's how uh, viral the story had gone. And so we went from this really difficult survival situation where you know we had to do exactly the right thing at the right time. Nobody, all the experts predicted nobody could have survived that long. And then we got out and we had this euphoria of our family and friends celebrating and people all around the country sending us congratulations. And so we were on this roller coaster emotional ride, but the endless nights in the freezing snow and breaking trail through this thigh deep snow for days had really taken their toll on my wife and her feet and her fingers were completely frozen solid. Her feet and her fingers were coal black. They were hard as a rock. Her fingers looked like you could snap them off like a pretzel stick. And uh, they flew her, of course, from Aspen into the Denver hospital in a flight for life. And the third day that she was in the hospital, 
the doctors pulled me aside from her hospital room that evening and informed me that they were going to have to amputate both of her feet at the arch of the foot. And then they would wait a few days till she recovered from that surgery. And then they would have to amputate all of her fingers. And I went home. So this is just immediately after this euphoria we had been on for a few days. And I went home that night and I walked in the door and I saw her pair of her running shoes by the front door. And I just collapsed on the floor and my legs went out from under me. And I just lay on the floor in a fetal position for hours contemplating what kind of life lay ahead of us if she was going to have her feet and her hands amputated. But I woke up in the morning like feeling as powerful as I had ever felt in my life. I had gone from the most powerless, terrible feeling of my life to the most powerful. And I rushed to the hospital early in the morning before the doctors could talk to my wife. And I told her she was going to have a complete recovery. And we started focusing on on a complete recovery, all the wonderful things we were going to do in life. We focused on we had we were sailors and we wanted to go sailing. We focused on having the ideal boat we could imagine and going off sailing and beautiful sailing trip around the world. And uh, there was no easy answer on the outcome. We spent weeks and she was 21 days in the hospital and then months and months of recovery. Uh, the doctors had come in and said, you know, told her that they were going to have an amputation and we refused to sign the papers for the surgery. And we just focused on this positive outcome. And it took months and months and months. But a year later, she was recovered. She had two feet and 10 fingers and nine and a half toes. So that was the hardest thing that I've ever had to deal with in my life. And I went from feeling completely powerless to com feeling unstoppably powerful in the matter of a few hours. And I maintained that powerful feeling for the months and months of recovery when the entire time we never knew if, you know, the amputations were always a threat hanging over our head. So that was my most uh, difficult uh, challenge in my life. Well, well, thanks for sharing that, Rob. Um, I'm not the most tactful person. So if I ever say anything that you're like, oh, that's kind of weird, Justin, just, just tell me and I'll, I'll, I'll try and rephrase it. Um, that's very powerful. I have to say, as you told that story, I could, I could see myself in that situation and uh, coming home from the hospital must've been just the most heart-wrenching thing because here you are, you've, you've come out of this dire situation and then it seems like at least your wife is back in the frying pan or, or out of the frying pan into the fire as it were maybe vice versa um but the, i guess the biggest question on my mind is what do you think caused that powerful powerful feeling that things would work out you know i have a I'm definitely a glass half full person or glass 80% full person. And that makes a huge difference. And I speak to people on how to live a happy and fulfilling life. And there's a concept called locus of control, which we all have either an internal or an external locus of control and locus means location. So it, it's a matter of whether you think you can affect your the outside world or you can affect your world and change what needs to be changed or whether you feel life just happens to you and you're just a pawn. And I have always felt that 
I can exert a large measure of control over my life. And if I can't change the outside circumstances, I can change the inside circumstances, what I'm thinking about, what I'm feeling about. And that's what we did. We, main, we, we planted this idea of a compelling future. We thought about the kind of sailing boat we would have and where we would go and what we would do. And I just maintained that sense of positivity in the face of the doctors every day saying, you know, this is going to be disastrous. I, I guess the next question would be, why have you always had that sort of mentality or what caused you to have that? Uh, there's a lot of research being done fairly recently in a field called positive psychology. And they actually, the, the, I've done empirical research on my own from my own, because it's been a subject that is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Why do I feel that way? Why, am I, why do I realize I'm different than other people in that right. regard? And they've actually found that about 40% of our happiness, not necessarily a direct answer to your question, but 40% of it is actually baked into our DNA. And they've done studies with identical twins to find that out. So part of that I probably got in my DNA, but now that I know that I have it, I actually have a process that I can take people through and teach it to others, whether they came by it through their DNA or not. It's a process that can be taught. And that's kind of one of the parts of of happiness is that we have this mistaken idea about it in that we think if you do all the things somebody told you to do, you go to school and you could go to college and you get a degree and you get married and you have a family and you have kids and you have a white picket fence and you have a job that gives you some measure of reward, that happiness hits you like a lightning strike. <laughs> and it doesn't actually work that way. You have to decide first to be happy. And when you decide to be happy, you then tap into things both chemically in your brain and kind of how you appear in the universe so that we decided to be happy. We didn't say, when my wife recovers, we're going to be happy. We decided up front, we're going to be happy. And uh, and so we decided up front, we were going to be happy. And then we generated the things we needed to do to live that life. And so Happiness really is a decision you make up front and then you end up being more creative and more resilient and more flexible and all the things that then lead you to the success that you're seeking. This might be somewhat of a (laughs) dumb question, um, but I'm okay looking dumb because I guess that's my job as the podcast host. You're the expert. I'm the, the, the not expert, I guess. Um, how, 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 I guess in specific ways, you know, action, if someone wanted to do this today, specifically, how does one decide to be happy? Um, I have a, a process that I lead people through, and I have an acronym for it called Live Happy. And the, the, so the, I'll just go through very quickly. The L of Live Happy, the L is to learn optimism, to see the glasses half full. And there's a way you do that by asking yourself better questions. And you ask yourself questions that are going to lead you to positive answers. The I of live is invent your new story. And we've all been through some kind of pain in our past, and we have some story that we tell ourselves. Well, I've rewired my stories so that I either 
focus on the positive that came out of it, if there was a positive, or at least I focus on a lesson I learned. And I don't tell myself stories of, well, you failed because of this and you're always going to fail. I just had tell myself a completely different story. You failed at this and therefore you learned something. And the next time you encounter that situation, you'll succeed. So that's the I. The V is value yourself. And I learned at a very young age not to care what other people think about me. What other people think of me is none of my business. And my sense of self-worth has to come from myself. And that's a hugely valuable lesson. If you focus, if you're controlled by what other people think of you, you're never going to be able to live authentically. And living authentically is what creates all this positivity in your life. Living authentically, being authentically who you are is how you meet another authentic person if you're looking for a partner in life. And then the E of live is to exert emotional control to where you control what you're feeling. And you do that by your physiology, how you stand. In other words, if I stood, you would, if I stood with my shoulders slumped and my face down and I spoke in a monotone, you would know that I was feeling depressed. And if I stood with my shoulders back and looking up and talking like I am with a lot of vibrancy in my voice, you would know that I'm excited or happy. So our physiology actually is attached to our emotions. So if you go for a walk outside and be, breathe deeply and put your shoulders back and your head up, it's physically harder to be depressed if you have the physiology of an excited, outgoing person. And then the other way we exert emotional control is what we focus on. So if you focus on the glass being half empty, it's going to be half empty. Then the, the second part of the acronym is HAPPY. And the first is the H is happiness is a decision. So that's what we were just talking about. You just decide up front to be happy and then you do the things that a happy person does. And if you do them for a while, they become habits and you find out happy is actually the definition of who you are. And the, the A is the simplest thing for people to do. It's practice a daily gratitude. And so I teach people to spend five minutes towards the end of every day and write down or type in your computer or whatever, type six things you're grateful for. And it can be simple things. I'm grateful that I got a parking lot, a parking space close to the front door. I'm grateful that my kid had a good day at school. I'm grateful that somebody smiled at me or I had a nice run in the park. They can be little simple things, but write down six things you're grateful for. And here's the key. It may only take you a minute to write all six things, but you have to spend five minutes focusing on those six things, why they make you happy, get in touch with that feeling of gratitude that you feel about them. And that's a, a daily practice of gratitude. And I'll tell you, if people do that for 30 days, it'll change who they are forever. I promise you, if every one of the person listening just spends five minutes toward the end of every day doing a gratitude practice, they'll be a different person in 30 days. Wow. And then the, the P and the P of happy are practice mindfulness, which is kind of like maybe you've heard of mindfulness meditation where you focus on uh, deep breathing and you cease judgment of what you're seeing and feeling and what your thoughts are. And then the next P is practice contribution. And this is the most important 
thing for long-term happiness because you can do a lot of things to make yourself happy in the short term, but one thing that is necessary for long-term happiness is to contribute to others, contribute to something bigger than yourself. Maybe it's through your job, maybe it's through some community organization you do, but when you contribute to others, it, it generates an entire different uh, physiology in your body and, in, and chemical processes in your brain. And I once had an experience where uh, something happened in business and I kind of was a whistleblower on somebody who was doing something bad. And like most whistleblowers, the stuff blows back on the whistleblower first. They don't believe what you're saying, you're, especially if you're uh, blowing the whistle on somebody who's got a lot of credibility or is big. And that's what I was doing. And so I was trying to warn people about somebody and it all blew back on me initially. And I was feeling so sorry for myself and I don't deserve all this and I'm getting all this negative stuff on the internet. And I had one little moment of saying, you know, the solution to my problem is to think about somebody that's worse off than me. And this was many years ago during Katrina, but my wife and I went to Alabama and we started working for Habitat for Humanity for a little while, building homes for people that had been lost their homes in Katrina. And it was life changing for me to focus on in the middle of my worst problems to focus on somebody else. And uh, we ended up meeting President Carter down there for with, when we were doing Habitat for Humanity. That was a wonderful experience. So anyway, practicing contribution is a big one. And the why of happy is your dreams. And I can teach people a process to figure out what their dreams are, what they, who they want to be when they dream of the perfect day or their perfect life or some particular goal they want to accomplish. And I can take people through a process to achieve their dreams. So that's the live happy uh, framework that I use. Wow, that is awesome. Um... That, that was a lot more specific than I, I thought. So you were very well prepared on that. Um, <clears throat> so in these moments um, during first the survival and then later during your wife's recovery, obviously being able to be positive was, was a big part, but what sort of things helped you maintain your composure as well as your ability to make the right call in the right moment? Thank you guys for listening to today's show. A little bit more about Rob Dubin. He is a serial entrepreneur. As you heard, he was also stranded in the wilderness with his wife during an intense winter season where all the experts predicted they would end up frozen dead. He also spent 17 years sailing around the world with his beloved wife. Uh, it was an interesting conversation today. We got a lot from him, and I would encourage you to think back on what you heard today and put it into practice. Also, make sure you come back on Wednesday to hear the second part of his conversation with me. Uh, make sure you stay tuned after the show to hear from our sponsors. And also, if you want to give me some extra secret super input on some secret super uh, project, reach out to me on Instagram at The Hard Thing Podcast. I'd love to hear your advice. But keep doing hard things, and you will overcome average.
Hey guys, one quick announcement for today's show, and you might have heard this already, even in today's episode, but uh, I have an awesome opportunity for you guys. Once in a lifetime, you have the opportunity to have dinner with myself and a covert CIA operative. That's right, an undercover spy. Uh, my guest, Andrew Bustamante, has been gracious enough to offer himself up <laughs> uh, as guest for a dinner with myself and one lucky audience member. So if you want to sign up for that, make sure you hit the link in the show notes below. As well, you can go to Instagram and hit the link in my bio at the Hard Thing Podcast. This is first come, first serve, and there's only one slot. So whoever signs up first will have the opportunity to come to Utah and have dinner with myself and Andrew Bustamante. It's an exciting opportunity. It's one that you'll be able to brag about to your friends of being able to sit down having dinner with an undercover secret agent. So don't waste any time. Go ahead and sign up in the link in the show notes or go to Instagram at The Hard Thing Podcast and click the link in my bio and you'll find all the relevant information there. Uh, so look forward to having dinner with you.